Welcome to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Magic Valley Bible Church has been serving the Magic Valley for 20 years and is located at the corner of Gooding and Main Street in downtown Twin Falls, Idaho. Our service starts at 9 a.m. and is streamed live on our YouTube channel. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible. Magic Valley Bible Church, built on God's Word. Beautiful song that draws our hearts towards meditation and, and awe and wonder of our great God. And I want you to take your Bibles this morning as we come to a text that does exactly that. Mark chapter 4 is our study as we've been expositing this great gospel verse by verse and, of course, taking a short break, but diving back into it, looking to finish chapter 4 this morning and, and moving real quickly into chapter 5. Is that an oxymoron? <laughs> But what a joy it is to be able to open up God's Word and allow it to just saturate our minds and, and help us understand how to think about Him. Today's title of today's sermon is, Who Then Is This? Let me read our passage for us, starting in verse 35, it reads, it says, On that day... When evening came, he, Jesus, said to them, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was, was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and the sea and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let us pray. Father, again, we thank you for the morning and the joy and delight of, of having your gospels Teach us about your life here on this earth. Father, we thank you for being and sending the great shepherd who walks with his people, who does ordinary things like sleeping. And yet in the most profound ways, is able to wake and to speak in creation obeys. Father, I pray that you would 
do much in our own souls as we look to Christ. May our worship not become trivial. May it be something that, that we too stand in awe of the things that you do and what you've done. May you awaken our souls to your wonder and your glory. Pray that you would help us as we dive through this text, that we would be able to grasp through the Spirit's help your greatness. Be with your servant. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. What seems to be a a neat little truth where Jesus calms the storm where there's an interaction with his disciples and their noted lack of faith is really a, a profound proof text on the two natures of Christ. What really rocked the boat for the disciples was not the storm, though it got their attention. But really what rocked their souls was their encounter with what Jesus has said and what he did. So much so they were left in awe and shock that led them to ask, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? You ponder that question. It's probably one of the greatest questions that needs a correct answer to. Who then is this? And not only is it one of the greatest questions, but it needs to have the right answer. Let me say it this way. To get Jesus wrong, your eternal soul is at stake. But to get Jesus right, eternal life, grace, forgiveness, mercy are yours through repentance and faith in him. Thinking about the two natures of Christ, so beautifully displayed by, by Mark, you, you start to get an understanding of this, this two nature and this one person, this, this trinity, this Godhead who comes. This thought has been discussed exactly, exactly what this is, looks like. There was so much discussion when the church began dealing with the two nature of Jesus, trying to to understand clearly what is going on. But let me just simply say this. When you think of Jesus Christ, you think of him as, as God, yes, and as fully man, yes. Jesus is fully and truly God and fully and truly man. How that computes in our mind is something that we got to deal with. But it is something that we in the scriptures teach and we believe. You can imagine the early church was all over the page trying to grasp this truth. So much so there was two councils that needed to to, to, to right the ship. There were heresies going on. There was thought, especially with the Gnostics, that, that Jesus only came in spirit and not in the flesh.
In AD 325, the Council of Nicaea affirmed the scriptures and the revelation of Jesus being truly God. And then in AD 451, the Council of Chalcedon agreed that Jesus was, at the same time, human and divine. Now, theologians call this the the hypostatic hypostatic union. It's kind of an interesting word, but it, it just speaks about the two natures of Jesus speaking about how they collide together in this incarnated God-man. It speaks about his humanity, it speaks about his deity, and that they are fully, truly on display. Jesus is but one person with two natures, his humanity and his deity. And when you think of Jesus in his humanity, we can think about the fact that he experienced everything that we as humans experienced. And we see this even in our passage, but, but he experienced even birth, growth. He was tired. He slept. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He showed righteous anger and sorrow. He wept, showed compassion showed love and joy and temptation, but yet never succumbing to that temptation. He suffered, even prayed, and even experienced death. Jesus was and is truly and fully man. And you've got to ask yourself, why? Why would he have to dwell amongst us and, and be everything that we are, yet without sin, right? And the reason he had to have humanity in him and live in humanity is because of what the writer of Hebrews most rightly says. Look at the screen. I think you'll draw this connection. It's helpful for our thinking of, of why he must have been fully human. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, it says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. What is the writer saying? Jesus had to become flesh so as to experience everything that human nature could experience so that he can be the appropriate mediator. Nobody can throw a rock at him and say, you know what, Jesus doesn't understand me. Jesus hasn't gone through my situation or my Issues. Listen, Jesus experienced it all. Yet there is more. Not only is he fully human, Scripture tells us that he is fully and truly God. And I think most of us get that. We look at Christ and we just marvel at all the miracles that he has done and how everything comes in subjection to him. Much of the scriptures speak about his deity. Not only was it on display, but he showed it multiple times. They, just think about that. 
changing water into wine, changing the composition of H2O into wine. Scripture points to the constant and multiple healings, so much so that, that John tells us that all the miracles that Jesus performed, showing and proclaiming his deity, could not be contained in all the books. He rose Lazarus from the dead. He made the blind see, and the list goes on and on and on. And in our study of the Gospel of Mark, Mark has highlighted some of these things about Jesus that are critical for us to understand if we want to know how to worship him rightly, to understand him, to love him, and to walk with him. Mark has already talked about his authority. We see that throughout chapters 1 through 3, this whole issue of his authority over demons, his authority in the synagogue over the rulers of the day, Jesus' authority over sickness and disease, and even his authority to, then, and the ability to forgive sins. And here at the end of Mark chapter 4, Mark shows Jesus' authority even over creation, and only God can make creation obey. Why? Because he is the creator. And the way Mark does this is by showing us these two natures. And you probably looked at that text, and, and I've seen many try to spiritualize what's going on here. But on the flip side, just flatly looking at the text, you see these two natures bounce off the page. I think it's intentional. Of course it is. Inspired by God, Mark shows us this reality of how the disciples reacted to him in the midst of a storm, only to be awe when he calmed it. Jesus is fully and truly man and fully and truly God. There was no one like him. And when you think about Jesus, your, your Christology, your, your study, your understanding of Jesus, it must have these two natures on display in your, your Jesus. And so what does Mark do? He, he clearly gives us Jesus' true identity by showing us two conclusive indications of Jesus' true identity as in the narrative. By telling us of the situation, this story of truth on the Sea of Galilee, he points to these two natures side by side. His humanity and his deity. He does this by showing us that Jesus was fully and truly man and fully and truly God. So it splits for us very easily. In the first one, we, we, we look at the ordinary display, just how Jesus went about life. We see this in verse 35 through 38. Look again at this text, verse 35 through 36. On that day, when evening came, he said to them, let us go to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and the other boats were with him. Context, right? He's setting the scene. We know what's been happening in Mark chapter 4. He's been teaching all day in parables to the crowd. And not only is he teaching the crowd who are scratching their heads when he would teach these parables, but he would pull the disciples aside and he would explain to them and those who are following him the meaning of the parables. 
He's at the, the shore of Galilee. He's in that perfect cove where he's able to magnify his voice up the mountainside. The people are pressing in on him. He's in the boat for his own, so to speak, safety. And get this, he's exhausted. He sat in this boat teaching the people, and evening came, and he said to his disciples, let us go to the other side. And what's remarkable, if you were to poke ahead and look at chapter 5, what is waiting for him on the other side? You talk about encountering a demonic man who had legions of demons within his soul. That's what we look forward to when we get to Jesus and this narrative on the other side. Now, looking at the geography of, of Israel, which, by the way, is a plug. We are taking a group of people to Israel, Lord willing, this coming spring, and we want you to be encouraged to be a part of that. There are only 30 spots. Many of you have got your name signed up, but I want to encourage you. There's still a few more spots, but uh, geography, helping us understand exactly what is going on. The scriptures tells us because why? The narrative sets in a real context, in a real place. This was somewhat of a jaunt, 12 miles in a boat, a small boat, which was no doubt crammed full with his disciples. We also note that the time of day, it's, it's evening, which seems kind of odd. How many of you guys get up? at night to go fishing. Some of you do. But most wait for what? Early morning. Now there's a reason why the disciples got up at night and fished. And that was because, again, geography. What was going on at the Sea of Galilee, which I'll point out here in just a second. But most of the fishing during that day took place at night. It was then where the sea would be the, the, the most common. I say sea. Well, you and I both know that the, the Sea of Galilee is all enclosed. It's really a, a big, freshwater lake. But it was most calm at night. And so it wouldn't be strange for the disciples to hear Jesus say, hey, let's go to the other side. Jesus and his disciples in this boat. What's also remarkable is to get in mind our picture of understanding of what, exactly what this boat looks like and the joy of going on to this Israel trip. Can I plug that a little bit harder? Is that there is a recovered boat there in Capernaum that gives us an idea of exactly what a fishing boat might be during Christ's time. Historians note that this boat would have been roughly about 25 to 30 feet long and six to eight feet wide and about five feet high. It would have a little small decks in the front and the back, a little planking in which you can not only store underneath, but stand above as you pull your nets in. We also note, according to our text, that according to verse 36, that there were other boats at the end there, verse 36. No doubt these were the disciples who, who, who were following him. These would be devout followers of Christ. They were going along wherever Christ was. And they were heading to the other side. 
And then all the commotion starts. Look at verse 37. And there arose a fierce gale of wind. And the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. The word gale here in the Greek speaks to a hurricane type of wind. I've never been in a hurricane. I've, I've seen torrential downpours in Florida, but nothing compares in my image and looking on TV and, and weather channels of hurricanes, a Category 5 storm comes upon them. Add the, the Greek word fierce, which is a, an interesting word because it's one of those things where he says this was a fierce type of wind. In the Greek, it's megale, which, which we use Often we understand where that word comes from, the whole idea of mega, and you think about that. We were just on vacation. We went to a place. It was called the Mega Store, and it was big. Clearly what Mark is wanting us to grasp is that this was a massive storm. What could cause that? Geography. Or how about the Lord himself? Now, there has been much study in the Sea of Galilee and its storms. And the conclusion is it's the most violent freshwater lakes in the world. And a part of that, like I say, again, is the geography. If you think about the Sea of Galilee, it sits 700 feet below sea level. It's like in a, in a bowl with mountains and hills around it. It has been measured to, at times, these storms to have waves as high as 18 feet tall. Now, I don't know about you, I think I would quit fishing if I was in a boat with a wave that high. It reminds me of the time when we took a bunch of youth. We were a youth pastor up in Washington. We took a bunch of people deep sea fishing. We went salmon king fishing. We took about 12 kids, put all the poles out. We get out there and everybody got seasick but the pastor. The kids were, they couldn't wait to get back. We were catching fish left and right. They were white as Casper the white ghost. The beautiful thing about it, they were adding chum to the side. And the fishing was great. <laughs> but we never experienced 18 feet high waves. Hilltops, Mount Hermans is not too far away, 9,000 feet above sea level. And what this caused, and you think about this, this, this bowl, this lake, and these high mountains that when the wind comes, and I'm no weatherman, but, but you see the wind currents, they collide and it causes waves that are just even unbearable for fishermen. Remind yourself, some of these disciples were fishermen. This wasn't just a little bit of rocking the boat. Matter of fact, the text tells us that, that they were concerned for their lives. So big was the storm that the waves were breaking over the boat, and the boat began to fill with water. And the disciples, they were panicking 
storm had their attention. They were concerned for their, their lives. All but one, Jesus. What is he doing? Look at verse 38. Jesus himself was in the stern, which is the back of the boat, asleep on a cushion. Now, I've been on some water beds. In total control, fast asleep. By the way, I don't know if there's any significance to this, but you think about this is the only place where we actually hear of our Lord sleeping and it's in the midst of a great storm. doesn't mean that he didn't sleep. He did. It also reminds us that when you think about the times he even stayed up all night, I mean, he was definitely contained in humanity. But Jesus is sleeping in the midst of a mega storm. And what Mark is showing us is just how calm and collective he is in the midst of his humanity. The Lord was tired. He slept. He was exhausted. He ate. He was hungry. He was thirsty, experienced sadness, all those things that we talked about. Now, like I said, we must see this storm as a providential call of the Lord. This storm didn't surprise him. No doubt the disciples, if you think about this, they would have checked the weather before they pushed off from the shore, do you not think? A fisherman would would see to make sure that if the idea is to get to the other side, that everything is going to be okay. All indication was that it was going to be perfectly calm, smooth sailing, and then they get in the middle, and these waves pounce. And then verse 38, again. Verse 38 is kind of, I got a smile when I look at this. I mean, not only is Jesus asleep on a cushion, But listen to what it says, and they woke him. Do you think that they went over there and just kindly tapped him and said, hey, Jesus, we got a problem? They woke him. In light of the megastorm, they went over there and they shook him to wake up. And they said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, one of the proofs of Jesus' humanity is how his disciples treat him. When you think about this, if he was just spirit, I mean, you wouldn't have this interaction where they would go over and shake him and and talk to him and, and treat him like, hey, you have no care. At least at this point, they're not happy with their teacher. He's over there snoozing. How in the world? And they said with intensity, we are perishing. They are going to die. I think what's interesting about this as well, when you look at the text, they are not asking him to fix the situation, are they? They're more concerned about what he's doing and that he doesn't care enough to respond to them. I mean, this is kind of an interesting thought when you think about the text and what has already preceded it. They've already seen him do multiple miracles. 
They've seen many things that he could do. He could easily say, hey, Jesus, we've got a problem. Can you stop the storm? But they were scrambling like men do in the midst of great peril. And they treat Jesus just like a man, like he fully was. I think my exhortation to you is to make sure that when we just read this narrative, we see the humanity side of Jesus, that that we don't forget that. If you're like me, we all love when Christ displays his goodness and his power. But don't ever think when you go into intercession and you go to prayer that, that Jesus doesn't understand he does. Why? Because he was fully and truly man. But they awaken him and something next is going to happen. And that's the second point of our outline in understanding the true nature of Christ. We see this extraordinary display of divineness on display, right? I mean, this is just flat out awesome. Look at verse 39. And he got up and rebuked the wind. Notice that as much as they are asking him to awake, they, they criticize his lack of shepherding for their souls, but he gets up, he doesn't address them, he first addresses creation. And he rebuked the wind and the sea, and he says, hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. Jesus gets up, he confronts this mega storm, and what's interesting in the Greek is how he uses these words. Remember that word mega, mega storm? He says literally in verse 38, hush, be still. And at the end of it, perfectly calm, mega calmness. He uses the same word. I mean, this was like glass. You and I both have been in storms before. It doesn't go that quick, does it? Clearly, Jesus showing his deity, and more importantly, his authority, where even creation obeys. Literally in the Greek, I give you a little bit of understanding of what the verb tense is going on here. This is a perfect passive imperative, which means Jesus says, be still and stay still. He's just literally commanding the water and the storm to be utterly quiet. What I like about this, not only does he have the ability to calm the storm, but there's no disobedience in the storm. They obey, right? The storm was over, and the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. The water ripple free. The moment Jesus spoke, it drastically went from raging waves to a calm sea. And you can imagine the disciples were in shock. They no doubt were catching flies with their mouths wide open. 
And Jesus then, in verse 40, turns his attention to them. Look what it says there. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Now, he uses the word afraid both in verse 40 and 41, and they're used differently. The word here for afraid in verse 40 has the idea of being a coward. Jesus goes right to the heart, and he knows how they're responding to the storm, and he notices that, and he calls them cowards. And then he puts a dagger in it, and he says, do you still have no faith? Ouch. I mean, there's no recovery from that, right? From the midst of having your heart so enraged and trying to figure this thing out to the place where Jesus questions their soul and they are just standing in awe. Literally, he's trying to help them. Don't you know that I have control of things? Don't you know that I'm sovereign? Now, there's a simple lesson that, that can be drawn from this, this principle, and I don't necessarily want to overcook it, but I just want you to understand something here. The difference between the disciples' lack of faith or cowardice and Jesus to have a greater faith in him has to deal and do with how they see the situation. What am I saying here? When a situation arises, how we walk through it all depends on if we are going to have our eyes fixed on Christ or the situation. That's a simple truth that is smattered throughout the scriptures. Just as even as we saw in the mental health series, the whole issue of a peace that passes all understanding. Why? Because we are steadfast looking to the Lord. Jesus arrives, awakened, calms the storm, and they should be surprised. I mean, I just ponder that thought. You just ponder the takeaway from, from the scriptures where what is teaching us. And simply put, no matter what a situation arises, we, as Christians, must always fix our eyes on Christ. Matthew 6.33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Your pastor has beaten that point and that truth and drawn it out so many times. But you think about Matthew 6.33, he's not saying Jesus first, everything else has a number. He's saying Jesus first in everything. Seek Christ first in his kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And the writer says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Psalm 40, what we read in the pastoral prayer, I mean, he concludes, David, by saying, since I am afflicted and needy, let the Lord be mindful of me. You are my help and my deliverer. He understands that his heart needs to be fixed on Christ. A simple principle that is often missed in the midst of living. Focusing on Christ. Having faith in Christ. Instead of the circumstance or the situation. Verse 41. They became, speaking about the disciples, they became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I mean, after Jesus rebuked their lack of faith and his sovereign care for their souls, he notes that the disciples became very much afraid. Again, a different type of fear. This would be a reverential fear. This would be a shock and awe type of fear. This would be one of those things, like I said, with your mouth wide open, just watching with your eyes what they say. They no doubt are, are hitting each other. Did you just see that? By the way, they're in a boat. And remember, there's not rooms. Jesus is hearing all this, and the, and the disciples are, are, are just marveled by the fact of what they just saw, the deity in motion, the hand of God moving. They were in a boat, and yet they were stunned, and they spoke out loud, who then is this that even creation obeys him? I think this was kind of like a Moses moment for them. Seeing the mighty display. And by the way, this is just starting to ramp up. Jesus will continue to show his deity in front of the disciples where they come to the point where they understand that the expectation for him, for them to fix their eyes on Jesus will be something that they will finally get. When I think about this, I don't know about you, but how I treated, if I was them and, and I treated Jesus with this, this accusation that you didn't really care for my soul, and then see him doing what he's done, I mean, I would be very humbled and ashamed. You know the beauty of this? Every time you look at the scriptures and you see God doing his thing and showing up and displaying his, his deity and showing the people that he is sovereign and in control, the natural response of man is always in reverential fear and trembling and falling on their faces. I mean, I think part of this in the narrative is to help them prepare what's going to happen next. I mean, every stop, it was just, they, they were just amazed. And by the way, this shouldn't have been a surprise to them. They should have had a theology, especially from the Old Testament, and especially Psalm 107, which describes a sailor in sea and an understanding that God is in control. And what you find in Psalm 107 is very parallel to what we find in the narrative in Mark 4. 
Let me give you some of that. Verse 23 of Psalm 107, those who go down to the sea in ships who do business on great waters. They have seen the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep, for he spoke and raised up a stormy wind. They recognize that God is sovereignly in control of even the weather, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like drunken man, like a drunken man, and, and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still, so that the waves of the sea were hushed, and they were glad because they were quiet. So he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for her wonders, for his wonders to the sons of men. Let them extol him also in the congregation of people and praise him at the seat of the elders. I mean, you think about the rejoicing and the worship that started in the midst of that boat. I mean, we would be saying, we got Jesus on our side. Look at what he has done. I mean, this, I mean, the response of, of seeing God move and do what he calls and does according to his character is just remarkable. No wonder they are going to delight in him and, and give thanks to him and praise him. Case in point, I remember a time when Shree and I, we were taking the family, we were heading down to vacation. We were going around, it was just a two-lane highway, and uh, if you call it a highway, but it was just a two-lane road and with double lines as far as one could see. We were enjoying our conversation, which we often do in the front seat while the kids sleep. We were taking a bend around a corner. I saw a semi coming. And what caught my eye in the midst of this turn, in the midst of this bend, was that there was a little zippy car in between the semi and us. Of course, there was no time to give thought to what is going to happen. We responded, and, and by the grace of the Lord, we're still standing here today. I mean, you think about that. Going around the curve, my wife being on the right side and seeing those little metal, little reflector lights and, and things, I was pushed so far over that that car slipped in between us. I passed that stretch before, and every time I do, I rejoice in the kindness of the Lord. Don't ask me how. How did all three cars go three wide around a corner? It was only by the grace of God. Now you can imagine that we had to do a wardrobe change. We had to change our clothes after that. <laughs> but our hearts were so stirred to the kindness and goodness of God. We turned around and looked in the mirror, and we just see these kids are just, though they were flopping around, they were still sleeping and asking, Dad, what's going on? Verse 
the kindness and goodness of God on display. And get this, still on display today. So what's our takeaway from this? I mean, as we draw a conclusion and we head to the Lord's table, I think there's some truth that you can walk away with an understanding that when you look at God and look at, in particular, Christ and having a Christology, you've got to have two natures of Christ. You've got to understand that he was fully human and fully divine. We understand why his humanity is, was so... Hebrew clearly tells us that, that he came to be the propitiation or the satisfaction of God for man. And then when we think about his deity, it puts our hearts at great at ease knowing that Jesus is in control of everything. Amen? Even control over his creation. which leads us to our third takeaway, why do we fear, right? He is sovereign. He is in control. A great narrative, a great truth to walk away with an understanding of how great and awesome is our God. So much so, this being the second Sunday of the month, we get the joy of of going to the Lord's table. We get to continue our worship and going to the Lord's table, looking at elements that exemplify the greatness and goodness of our God, especially when it comes to salvation. We here at Magic Valley Bible Church believe in an open communion, which means this, that if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you repented and believed, we want you to partake with us. Now, how you partake is important. Scripture calls us not to do such a thing in an unworthy way, that we check our heart before we approach the table, that we make sure that we're right with him and with others before we partake, remembering him. So in line with that, I'm going to ask the worship team to come forth and the men who's going to serve us this morning to come. And as they do, I want us to pray and give our our souls some time as we prepare our hearts to receive the elements. Let us pray. We, We stand in awe of your goodness and kindness to us. That's what has been displayed in the simple narrative of going from point A to point B. Your goodness and kindness has been revealed. What they accused you of, as far as not caring for their souls, you immediately did when you told the wind and the seas to be still. That changed the disciples' perspective. The threat, or the external threat, was gone. And yet... There they stood in the midst of the holiness and the greatness of Christ. And they were in awe. 
So much so they asked, who then is this? No doubt such a, a truth is, was shaking their understanding of exactly who Christ the Messiah is. And we too have those moments where the situation seems far bigger than the sovereignty of God. And yet how foolish are we when your hand is displayed and your gracious care comes alongside of the believer. And how tender that is in our thoughts on how great our God is. Lord, as we approach your table, we, we do so with that reverential fear that the disciples finally had. We come in awe with the reality of, of all that you have done. What you atoned for, what you redeemed us, what you transformed us with your blood. We think about the act of, of crucifixion and, and the joy of the resurrection and the ascension. So much so that we are reminded that you're not up in the right place at the right hand of God the Father Sleeping, you are now interceding for us. Oh, how marvelous and how great is Christ. And so we come and we remember and we worship and we partake because you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. We pray in your Son's name, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible, or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible.